Well, good morning. Um, not too many of us here this morning, are there? But uh, at least we can be socially distanced if we want to be. Um, we're going to look at this uh, 12 verses that we've read this morning. It's quite a complicated passage. It actually says there's an awful lot in it. Uh, but uh, first of all, let's uh, ask a basic question. Because you're a long way through the book of Acts now, You've had a chance to get the feel of the way it goes from one section to another, one story to another. And there's a question we've got to ask that helps us keep Acts in focus. And that's what exactly was Luke trying to do when he wrote Acts? You might think, well, it's simple, isn't it? It's a sequel to the gospel. Well, yeah, but there are some things that are, you, you notice about it, aren't there? First of all, it's not the whole story of how the early church grew. It follows Peter a little bit, and then it follows Paul a big bit. But there were other things happening at the same time. Do you remember when Paul fell out with Barnabas, for instance? He went off in one direction and started planting churches all over the place, and we read about that in Acts. Barnabas went in the other direction. What did he do? There's a whole untold story there that you just don't read about in Acts. You read about Peter on the way through, don't you, as well? And at first you think, oh, Peter's going to be the hero of this because he's the one who goes to Cornelius' house and all the rest of it. And uh, you're just getting used to the idea that Peter's the hero of the story when all of a sudden he drops out and you've got Paul for the rest of the book. And that's the second thing, isn't it? Uh, it, it misses out large chunks about Peter and Paul. There are big things in the story that we just don't hear about. We know that Peter carried on planting churches and preaching and writing all over the place. And we find out later on that John Mark, who was one of Paul's rejects, ended up with Peter as well. We'd love to know more about that. Acts tells you nothing. A third thing is it ignores big parts of the story. Um, it seems to be the case when you reconstruct it that Paul actually was sent into prison in Ephesus. And it was one of the most horrible, nerve-wracking experiences of his life. He says in one of his letters later on, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. And clearly that's something that's something pretty awful, but you don't get a word of it in it. So what is Acts actually trying to do? Also, when you look at the last chapters, the chapters that we're in now, everything switches around, doesn't it? Instead of Paul going from city to city and doing all kinds of things, being thrown into prison, shipwrecked, let down city walls, all that kind of stuff, suddenly you've got arguments, trials, debates, discussions, like the bit that we've read this morning. And uh, why does Luke write the book in this way? Given he's got so much material to pick from because there's so many good stories happening about here, why does he make the pick that he does? Well, I think the answer is quite simply in when the book was written. Now, some day I can fix for it. It had to be after AD 62 because that's when the last things in the book happened. And obviously you can't write a book about something that's not happened yet. So clearly it was written after AD 62 and it was written before 160 AD because that's when Christian writers in the early church start quoting chunks of it. So clearly it was written at that point because, again, you can't quote from a book that's not been written. That's a pretty wide span. Can we narrow it down anymore? Well, yes, we can. Uh, we know it must have been written after the Gospel of Mark because Luke in his Gospel, and Luke Acts was one book originally, uh, Luke in his Gospel quotes from Mark, so large chunks of Mark actually, so it must have been written in the 60s somewhere after Mark was already there. And crucially too, we know it must have been written by AD 95 because there's a letter called First Clement which is not part of the Bible, it was just a good letter written by an early Christian leader, which doesn't quote the Acts, but when you look at it carefully, it hints, it refers to it several times. So it must be, have been written in that block of time in there. Now, 
What was happening in the church that was big in those years? Well, when you look at Christian history, it's pretty obvious. There was one thing that stood out against everything. It was a time when lots and lots of Gentiles, people who weren't Jews, were coming into the church. And the church changed, in fact, over those few years that we've marked in blue there, from being a Jewish thing with a few Gentiles hanging around the edges to being a Gentile thing with lots of Jews walking away from it and saying, I'm not really that interested. So Paul was writing the book of Acts to people who were coming into the church who were not necessarily Jewish and had lots and lots of questions to ask. Why had the church been Jewish and now it's becoming Gentile? Why were so many Jews violently opposed to Jesus if it really was true that Jesus was the Messiah? Why uh, was it that, that Paul was getting a bad name all over the place for the things that he taught, which people thought were, 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 were destroying synagogues and uh, uh, dividing people? Why was it that so many rumors were spreading about, well, as you know, these churches wouldn't have spread as fast as they have done, you know, unless there was something weird going on, maybe there was money involved, maybe there was extortion, something like that. How did the churches actually start? And so Luke says, right at the start of his gospel, in Luke chapter 1, that he's writing this for someone called Theophilus. <laughs> and Theophilus, it's a Greek name, seems to have been a Gentile who'd become a Christian. And he and his friends were asking all sorts of questions. And uh, Luke says, since I've investigated uh, all the reports in close detail, starting from the story's beginning, I decided to write it all out for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt the reliability of what you were taught. So act as a book for people who are just coming into the church and asking all sorts of questions to show them, yes, you are in the right place. Yes, this is all reliable. Yes, you can trust what we're teaching you. What were the big questions in the mind of Theophilus and his friends? Well, obviously, one of the first ones was, the stories about Jesus, are they actually true? Did it really happen? Because now you've got people coming into the church who were quite young when Jesus was still around. And they're asking, is, is this just legend? Is this hype? Has it been exaggerated? Or is it actually true? So that was one question. And of course, the Gospel of Luke answers that one. They were also asking, how did all these churches start from nowhere? This is the most incredible thing in the ancient world. You've got all of these religions and philosophies all over the place. And suddenly, poof, tiny Jewish sect becomes the biggest thing around. How did that actually happen? And so Acts helps to piece that together for us and say, look, this is the way the early evangelists went to, to work. We're going to tell you about uh, Paul in particular, but there are lots of others. There's Peter, there's, there's lots of them. And it shows exactly how it all started. But there was a third question, which it seems to me is more important and explains why you get these bits that you do at the end of the book of Acts. And the third question for somebody, especially a Gentile coming in is, well, what will this be like for me if I try to follow Jesus in the Roman world today? How is, what can I expect from being a Christian? If this is the truth, and I believe it, how's the rest of the world going to treat me? And how am I going to answer back? That, it seems to me, is why you get all the detail you do in this story in chapter 23. You see, if you're a Christian in the ancient world, there were three things at least that you would have to face. And those three things are still around today. And we will have to face them here and now. Let's face it. Christians are not exactly flavor of the month in Britain right now. Look how many people you've got here this morning. Look at the houses around here when you park your car and walk into the building. People are walking their dogs. People are reading the paper. People are washing your car. People are looking at their watches and thinking, are the pub, pubs open yet? Not too many people are doing what you're doing. 
And so these early Christians were in a similar situation in a Roman world that just didn't understand what they were about. They'd have to face hostility. People who just did not like what they were all about. And we get that in the world today, don't we? More, I would say, at the start of the 21st century than we've seen for a long time. I know when I was growing up, uh, sometimes if you're sitting on a bus with somebody and they said, so what do you do for a living? And you said, uh, well, I'm a Christian. You could go, ah, mm, yes, well, that must be very rewarding for you. That's very nice, very noble. And there used to be at least a respect for Christians, even if they felt uncomfortable being with you. Now that's not the case, is it? Christians are seen as homophobic. Christians are seen as life-denying. Christians are seen as trying to impose things on other people that uh, uh, should not be happening. Christians uh, oppose abortion legislation. They oppose euthanasia legislation. Christians are up against things. Christians are also hypocrites. Look at the evangelicals in America and their support for Donald Trump and uh, the way in which they've excused all sorts of bad behavior just because they believe this guy was sent by God. And, and so it goes on. And there's a hostility to Christianity around that we've not seen, I think, for the last 200 years in Britain. There was another thing they'd have to face, so, and that's just complete and outright rejection. Being hostile is one thing, but just saying what you believe is absolute rubbish, I'm not having anything to do with it. That's something quite different. And we've seen a lot of that, haven't we? For the last 25 years, we have suffered the attacks of the new atheists, the Christopher Hitchens, the Richard Dawkins, people like that. If many people don't read their books, at least they've, they've, they, they, they laugh on TV at the comedians who are very much followers of them. Ricky Gervais, Jimmy Carr, people like that. And comedians and, uh, and people in, in, in public find it quite easy to poke fun at Christians and Christianity. And uh, it, that never used to happen. And we are facing a complete rejection, especially amongst young people, of what we stand for that we have not seen in Britain for a very long time. There's a third thing, too, that they have to face, and we also have to face disappointment. Sometimes things don't work out the way you want them to. Yes, it's true. Looking back now from where we are, we can see the story of the first 300 years of the Christian church as pretty incredible. How on earth did they manage to, 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 to make such an impact? How was it? You know, 300 years after the church started, a Roman emperor looked around his, his empire and said, Christians here, Christians here, Christians here, Christians here. Oh, you can't beat them, join them. And became a Christian himself. How did that happen? And we can look back and say that was amazing. But for the Christians living through it, it was not like that at all. And so one of the reasons for writing Acts and telling the story of the up and down episodes is simply to say, look, this is how it's going to be before God brings about his plan. You will go through disappointment. I've seen lots of disappointment since I uh, gave up my job such as it was uh, at age 24 and, and went into full-time Christian work. I was on the team for Mission England, Billy Graham's last stand in this country, when he appeared in football stadiums all over the place and Christians were praying this would really turn the tide in Britain and just change public opinion of the Christian gospel. And don't get me wrong, hundreds and hundreds of people got converted. It was great. But did it turn the tide? No, it didn't. And since then, we've seen disappointment after disappointment. We've seen plans for world evangelism that haven't worked out. I remember going to the Lausanne con cons uh, consultation in Manila in the Philippines uh, a few years ago. And that sounds grandiose, so I better explain that I was there to sell tickets and somebody else was paying the ticket. But I, I, I was there listening to the sessions, and uh, uh, I remember them starting the first session by saying, isn't it fantastic? 
We have at least 340 plans that Christian organizations have come up with to complete the work of world evangelization by the end of the 20th century. I remember thinking, we don't need 340 plans. We need one plan everybody agrees to. And perhaps because there were so many different patent schemes for doing it, we didn't do it. And so there's disappointment involved. Now, I still believe God is in charge of the situation. I believe God is not finished with our culture and our civilization yet. But those are things we have to face. In the reality of the moment, we are going to be up against. So I think this story uh, tells you a lot about these things. Now, where did it actually happen? If you go to Jerusalem nowadays, you will find there's a big model of what the city must have looked like in Jesus' day. And there's a model of the temple, which is what you see there, uh, which shows where the temple was on the top of the Temple Mount. And in the top right-hand corner, the back right-hand corner there, you can see this building, which was the Fortress of Antonia. That was where the Roman troops were stationed in Jerusalem in those days. That's why when there was a rumpus in the temple, they were able to get down so quick and haul Paul out of it. Uh, the, 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 it was right next door. Now, actually, this is probably not good. The model is probably uh, wrong, and it probably looked a bit more like this. The whole of the present Temple Mount was the fortress of Antonia. That's a fortress there, great big place. And it had to be that big because the Roman legion stationed in, 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 in Jerusalem. That's 6,000 people. You wouldn't get 6,000 people into a tiny little place like the model shows you. So it probably occupied the whole of the Temple Mount, and then the temple itself was off uh, to the left there. And between the two of them, there was a kind of a, a space and, and two roads. You might just see it up the back of the, the, the picture there running between the uh, temple and the fortress. That meant that Roman soldiers could, if there was any d problem whatsoever, run across one of those colonnades and sort it all out. And you could take whatever was making the trouble back along the other colonnade back into the fortress. So that's why the Romans responded so quickly to what was going on. That seems to be where Paul was speaking and talking to the crowd. You remember the commander gave him permission to address the crowd, and he was okay uh, for a while, and then he shouted, away with him, away with him, and then the Romans took him back into the fortress. And the Roman commander wondered why all this fuss was going on. So the next day, in the passage that we've read, he takes Paul in back into the temple. We don't know quite where, but somewhere in the temple premises, and there the whole Sanhedrin gets together. Now, they were the supreme Jewish authority. They were the religious leaders who decided how the Jews were going to respond to all the things that the Romans were asked to do. And so they were in charge of the country under the Romans. And there Paul speaks to the religious leaders of his people, and he has the argument with them that you see in, in chapter 11. Ah, let's forget that bit. That's not important. That's just the colonnades up there. So what happens in the story? Well, we've read it together. There are three things, it seems to me, that we need to look at in the next 15 minutes or so. The first of all is the attack of Ananias. Paul's brought in. There are the Sanhedrin. And he starts by just, just saying, my brothers, I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. What I want to tell you first of all, he says, is I have never done anything in bad conscience. I'm not a liar, I'm not an extortioner, I haven't twisted things in any kind of a way, I've not manipulated people, I've done everything in good conscience. You might agree with me, you might disagree with me, but there's no problem. Now, Ananias, who was once the high priest, might be the high priest at this point, but it seems unlikely because Paul doesn't recognize he is a high priest, um, uh, is sitting there, and Ananias immediately says, strike him on the mouth! So the first thing you've got is instant hostility. Probably two reasons for that, actually. Paul starts off, did you notice, my brothers. 
And that's not a very kind of um, timid way to start. He's claiming, you're my brothers. We're all Jews. We, you know, we, we come from the same family. We're the children of Abraham. <laughs> and uh, the high priest doesn't like this because he feels he should be given a bit more dignity. Oh, a background on Ananias. We know a lot about him, actually. He died uh, about 10 years later, assassinated by the Jews <laughs> because he was a cunning, greedy, grasping piece of work. And he took money that didn't belong to him. He took the, the uh, uh, corn that belonged to other priests and had his sins put it into his barns. He was somebody who wasn't like much. But he managed to hang on to the high priesthood because he had influential positions in Rome for longer than anybody else in his period. And it was only when the Jewish revolt against the Romans started that he found he was friendless and uh, he tried to hide and shelter and get away, but they found him and, and, and killed him. So Ananias was a man who was very, very proud, uh, full of his own dignity and very much very me, me, me. And so as soon as Paul starts saying this, he feels insulted. But also Paul's saying, I've done this in good conscience. And if there's one thing Ananias didn't have, it was a good conscience. So he just gets hostile straight away and says, strike him on the mouth! Which is a way that uh, people had in those days of saying, we're not going to listen to any more of this. Your mouth is unclean. Uh, we're not going to listen. And it wouldn't be a, a gentle tap on the teeth. Not the kind of whack that left your mouth bleeding and various teeth being spat out and things like that. So it was quite a way to start. That's hostility, isn't it? Second thing in the story is the argument about Paul. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, two different sects of the Jews, start arguing about Paul in such a way that the whole discussion can't go on any further. You might say, well, it's Paul's fault because it says, isn't it? Um, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial trust of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And he raises this theological point, as the video put it, and immediately starts, oh, the resurrection of the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Do you believe in the resurrection? And Sadie says, no, we don't believe in the resurrection. Oh, come here then. Who's saying that? You know, and they have a free fight. So Paul is unable for the discussion to continue, and the Roman commander says, oh, Jews, and takes him back into prison in the fortress. So there's the argument about Paul, and I think that talks about rejection, because what Paul is doing there is pointing out that he's never going to get the Sadducees on side. They've already rejected everything he's got to say because they don't believe that anybody can come back from the... So if Paul starts by saying, folks, on the road to Damascus, I saw Jesus, the Sadducees are going to say, rubbish, that is absolutely impossible. It's not just hostility, it's rejection. And what's the third thing? Well, well the third thing, it seems to me, is that at the end of this whole thing, as Paul is taken back into the citadel, he goes to bed, he goes to sleep, and there's Jesus. And he has an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says to him, take heart, be encouraged. It's been a really disappointing day, but it's just the start of something much bigger I'm going to do. So that's what's happening in the story. Let's look at those three things uh, one by one and see how we, what we can learn from them about being Christians in the world today. First of all, then, you've got the attack of Ananias. And uh, Ananias uh, gives Paul uh, a sharp... Uh, rebuke at the start of this, this, this encounter, but Paul fights back as well. And you might think this is unusual because these are some of the words that Paul wrote. Let your conversation be always full of grace, reasoned with, seasoned with salt, sorry, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, the interesting thing about those words is that they come from Paul's letter to the Colossians. And if I am right, and most modern Bible scholars today are right, Colossians was written about a year before all of this happened. 
So you might think, Paul, you hypocrite. Grace seasoned with salt. And here you are saying, God will strike you, you whitewashed walled wall. Ah, yeah, but wait a minute. There are two ways you could say it. I think when you read those, you know, those verses, you tend to think Paul just loses the plot for a minute, doesn't he? Oh, somebody smacked me. I've lost three teeth here. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I might be struck. Oh, I'm not and so on. Now, if you read it that way, you read it wrongly. Because it's quite possible that what Paul did was simply say, look, you strike me. God will strike you, you whitewashed you whitewashed wall. You're sitting there to judge me according to the law, but you're violating the law yourself by commanding that I should be struck. Now, where does that view? He could have said it quite reasonably. And in fact, I think he did. Because if he'd just lost the plot, all over the place, I don't think the Pharisees would have supported him later on. I think Paul's response was definite and clear, but measured. He obviously hadn't lost his temper at this point. And so I think this little bit of this story shows us three things about facing hostility. When people are hostile to you, what's the first thing? First thing is you say clearly what needs to be said. There was no way that Paul could give in to the high priest at this point and say, oh, oh, I'm very sorry, I'm very sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. Say clearly what needs to be said. And sometimes that means you have to look people in the eye and say things that they find unpleasant. Look, I'm sorry. You don't like me because I'm a Christian, but let me tell you one or two things. And, and sometimes there are things that need to be said, and you have to say them. But the second thing is this. You say it in a gracious, controlled manner. You don't just get annoyed. I've been in many situations, especially in universities, I can tell you, where students have said the most half-baked, arrogant, sneering, un uninformed, unintelligent things. And everything in you says, strangle this guy before he gets even more idiotic. And you can't do that. You've got to show them that they're idiots, <laughs> but at the same time, you've got to do it in a way that doesn't lose your audience. And so do it in a gracious, controlled manner. And third, apologize when you make a mistake. You see, Paul was quite right, it seems to me, to come back at the high priest and point out that he was doing it completely the wrong way. He was denying Paul any chance of a fair hearing, and he was going right against the law that he claimed to be defending. He was right to say those things, but he was wrong to say it the way he did to the high priest. Because it does say in Exodus 22, do not um, speak evil about the ruler of your people. And so he could have found himself saying it that didn't attack Ananias directly. And I think it's partly because Paul backed down uh, on, on this one and said, I'm sorry, guys, I didn't mean to offend because I don't want to break the law in Exodus 22. I think it's probably because of that that the Pharisees started talking, yeah. This is someone we can deal with. This is somebody who makes God's law seriously. And so then you get to the, the, the second bit, don't you? That was hostility. And that, I think, is how we deal with hostility. Those three points. But then second, rejection is a bit more difficult. And this is the argument that ensues when the Pharisees and the Sadducees fall out with one another. Well, it explains a little bit in the passage, doesn't it, what the Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed about. The Pharisees were people who believed in the whole of the Old Testament. And they believed as a result of that that there was a life after death. And after you died, uh, God still had plans for you. And they believed in spirits. They believed in angels. And uh, they, they, they believed in supernatural visitations that could happen here and now. The Sadducees did not believe in that. 
The Sadducees based themselves on the first five books of the Old Testament. Oh, they read the other ones, but it was only the first five books, the law, that they, they counted as really important and significant. And so they believed everything the law said, but nothing more than that. And so they did not believe that God was still doing things in the world today. They believed that the only way we could make sense of the old religious traditions of the past was to do what we could for ourselves, to live life, to get as much out of it as you could for yourself. And so the Sadducees often tended to be in high positions because they were ambitious, they were pushy, they wanted to make money, they wanted to be top. And that's how Ananias was a typical member of uh, the Sadducees. Because if you didn't live in this life, it wasn't going to happen. Whereas the Pharisees believed in resurrection from the dead. Now, it looks again, when you read this passage just, just casually, as if Paul thinks, hmm, this argument's not getting anywhere. Let's just throw a bomb in here and get them all arguing with one another. Guys, actually, this is about the resurrection of the dead. Now, do we believe in the resurrection of the dead or don't we? <laughs> That's got them butting. Okay, end of story. Now, I don't think that was what Paul was trying to do at all. I think he desperately wanted to use this occasion to tell people what the gospel actually was. Because here he is in front of all of the leadership of his own people. It's a dream situation. And he had a chance to tell them all about Jesus. And he didn't get a chance to do it. So I think he realized early in the discussion that he was never going to get anywhere with this group because there was a blockage in their brains. For some of them anyway, the Sadducees, which would get, prevent them going any further. When he said, I met the risen Jesus, the Pharisees would go, really, that's interesting. But the Sadducees would say, that's impossible. It couldn't possibly have happened. And we've got people in the world today who are a bit like that. In fact, a very famous American clergyman died last Sunday uh, who was very much like that. This is the Bishop John Shelby Spong, um, who didn't believe in anything much, quite honestly, by the end of his life. And uh, the obituary article about him here says, Spong rejected divine interventions, including Jesus' deity, resurrection, virgin birth, and miracles. In the end, he denounced theism, the belief in God, itself. He also questioned Christian teachings about the afterlife and suggested that their primary purpose was control of human behavior in this life. And you could just hear the Sadducee saying, Amen. That's what it's about, controlling the people through religious ceremonies. Heaven and hell have got to go. go. Uh, the, le the bishop lectured at uh, uh, a theological school after authoring his 2010 book, Eternal Life and New Vision. Nobody knows what the afterlife is all about. Nobody even knows if there was one. Now, if he'd been living in Paul's day, he would undoubtedly have been a Sadducee. But it's a failing philosophy. So another thing that the obituary of him says is just how his church shrunk. I won't even read this. It's too far away. And uh, I don't want to turn around all the time. But... Uh, how his church shrunk in the days when he was bishop. Because he didn't really believe in anything very much. There was nothing he believed in except the human will and our ability to do things by ourselves. And that's not really good news to human beings who recognize their failures and they need a living God to help them. So Paul realized there was a, a, a blockage here that had to be sorted out. And sometimes you'll find that if you want to deliver a message correctly, you have to pick your way through loads of rubbish first. You have to gently, one by one, dismantle the objections and the problems that are in the way before people will really listen to what you've got to say. So I think Paul realized he was up against a roadblock here. And this is why he said, listen, we have a problem here because you're not going to understand what I say unless you're open to the possibility that people can live after their death. Now, are you or aren't you? 
And of course, there's this argument straight away between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sometimes you just have to realize that people are opposed to your message, rejecting your message, not because they have good grounds for doing so, but just because there's something getting in the way. I remember uh, a few years ago when we'd just taken a bunch of small grandchildren uh, to watch a pantomime in Exeter. We came out of the theater, it was Christmas time, and there were a bunch of Christians from a small evangelical church who were singing carols along the high street. And we stopped for a few minutes to listen to them singing because they were pretty good, really. And then they finished singing and somebody stood up to preach. And immediately a man came out of the crowd and said, this is rubbish, don't listen, this is all rubbish, go, go and sit down, go, go away, no, God, there's no God, Jesus. And uh, I, 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 I thought, we've got to do something about this. this the preacher is not going to get a chance here. So I just went forward and took him by the arm and said, listen, listen, give the guy a chance, mate, come on, just, just let him say what he's got to say. Just respond afterwards. And he said, go, go. I said, what, why are you so bothered about this? And I could hear my daughter in the background say, oh, dad, come on, get, let's get out of here. <laughs> But uh, he sat down for a minute, and he told me about his wife and his two small children and how his wife had been diagnosed with cancer a couple of weeks before. And just the day before he was walking down the high street there, he'd realized that she was going to die very, very quickly. And his anger against God just overwhelmed everything else about him. And so we talked for a bit. <laughs> I'd love to say I brought him to faith, but that wasn't going to happen that afternoon. There was just so much to be dismantled. And I, I could have offered to pray with him. I, I, I almost did. But I, did, I thought, no, he's not ready for this yet. And so all I said was, listen, look, when I go home, I'm going to pray for your wife. Tell me her name. And he told me her name and his name. And he said, if you pray, that would be absolutely brilliant. And I felt like saying, aha, uh -huh, I thought you didn't believe in God. <laughs> but you see, it wasn't that. It was just rejection. He was just pushing God away. And so when he heard a Christian preaching, God loves you and that's why he sent Jesus at Christmas time. That was just a head drag to a bow. And sometimes we need to do that with people. To say, well, what is the blockage? What is their objection? And when we're prepared to take them seriously and sit down and talk about it, it's amazing how much stuff will shift. Is there a third thing? Yep. A third thing right at the end of this passage is the answer to disappointment. The encounter with Jesus. And this is the last thing I have to talk about this morning. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This lady on the screen is a, 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 a Jewish lady in America who became a Christian teacher. And she's written quite well, I think, about this, this, this whole episode and how it felt to Paul to be in this situation. And she says this, Paul must have felt so discouraged after two days of seemingly utter failure. His vows left incomplete because, remember, he was in Jerusalem to, to per perform some vows and they dragged him out of the temple before he was able to finish the whole thing. The very purpose he'd come back to Jerusalem for. The Jerusalem church distanced from him. His missions team of largely Gentile Christians left without an emissary within the conservative Jerusalem atmosphere. He brought nine people, most of whom were Gentile Christians, back to Jerusalem with him. Now he'd been arrested and everything. What, what, what are we doing here? It's all Jews around here. Oh, I don't like this guy. He's beaming up God. And, and, and uh, he left them as well. Paul himself was badly beaten up, bereft of companions, legal counsel, or mediator of any kind, hated by his own people whom he loved so much, God's holy city in an uproar during Pentecost, and no fruit whatsoever. The gospel totally rejected. And Paul was one of those, is it me or is it them situations, where he's feeling discouraged, defeated, and broken down, and Jesus appears to him. Now, this was not the first time but uh, Jesus had appeared to Paul. 
It happens, I think, four times in Paul's life that we know about. Paul got messages from God in all sorts of different ways. Remember when he, was, you know, when he went across to Asia for the first time, across to Philippi, he saw a man, uh, across to Europe rather, uh, he saw a man in European clothes in a vision at night, and he thought, oh, that's what God wants me to do. But four times it was the Lord Jesus he saw directly. When was that? Well, the first one you know about, obviously, on the Damascus Road. The Lord Jesus appears in glory, and Paul realizes, I've got this whole story about Jesus completely wrong. And so he becomes a Christian. And he goes back to Jerusalem after a while. And he's praying in the temple in Jerusalem. And there's Jesus again. And Jesus says, Paul, you've got to get out of Jerusalem. I'm sorry, you've got to leave. And Paul says, well, I'll just come back here. Look, I can tell everybody about Jesus now. He's transformed my life. And Jesus says, ah, ah, this is not the moment. Get out. I need you alive. The third time was in Corinth. Do you remember, Paul goes to Corinth. It's a few weeks back now. And he starts preaching and uh, uh, some in the synagogue believe, others reject it violently. And so the new Christians and those who are asking questions move off so that Paul can preach to them. And where do they go? They take rooms right next door to the synagogue in somebody's house. So you've got the Jews going in one door, the Christians going in the other, and the potential for a riot right through the city. And Paul must have felt pretty discouraged. Is it worth going on? Shall I do this? And so Jesus appears to him and says, listen, Paul, you must keep going. I have many people in this city. This is not a failure. This is something that we're going to see something big happen through. And uh, that's the third time. And so the fourth time is here. So you can see a pattern, can't you? Every time Paul might be going to do something crucially wrong, Jesus appears and says, look, I'm still with you. Take courage. On we go. And um, it seems to me that here... In his discouragement, Paul might have lost it completely. And so God gives the answer to his disappointment. And Jesus uses a little phrase which he uses again and again in the Gospels. It's a Greek word, tharsai, which means take courage, or literally, be warmed up. It's as if you're cold inside, you're, you're chilled because you can see no hope, and suddenly there's Jesus. Jesus uses it four times in the Gospels. The first time he says tharsai, is the story of a paralytic in Matthew chapter 9. A man who knows that he's, he's paralyzed and he's lying on a stretcher, but also he's done bad things in the past that he doesn't think God can ever forgive him for. And this cold chill of fear is gripping his heart. Jesus looks at him and says, Tharsai, your sins are forgiven. Second times later on in the same chapter, when, do you remember, there's a woman who's had a, a problem with bleeding for years and years. She wants to come and touch the edge of Jesus' garment and be made whole again. And she does it in the middle of the crowd. And suddenly Jesus turns around and looks at her and says, Oh, I've done something I shouldn't. Now he's going to condemn me and I'm going to die. And Jesus says, Tharsai, be encouraged. Don't let the icy chill grip your heart. Just realize, I know, I'm there. The third time, well, the third time is when Jesus walks on the water. Remember the disciples are in the boat at night? And you see this figure walking across the waves toward them. And they start saying, it's a ghost, it's a ghost, it's a spirit, we're all going to die. And what does the ghost say? He says, Tharsai, <laughs> be warned up. Don't be icy, cold, chilled by fear. Take courage, move on. And the final one, I suppose the most important of the lot, is just before Jesus is arrested. Where in the upper room he says to the disciples, look, I'm saying these things to you so that you can have peace. In this world you will have trouble. And they start looking at one another and saying, oh, and he says, Tharsai, 
be of good courage. I have overcome the world. And so that's what he's doing to Paul here. And the answer to disappointment, it seems to me, is not to say, oh, it's all falling in ruins, there is no hope. It's just to get back into the presence of Jesus and say, Lord, encourage me, fill me up, keep going. And so that's the challenge to us this morning, isn't it? Do we know how to handle hostility? Can you handle people who are hostile, who are aggressive, who want to wind you up and do it graciously in a way that, that wins the person as well as the argument? Do you know how to handle uh, 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 rejection by taking time just to think, now what is it that's do, making the blockage in these people? And can we shift it before we go any further? Because you're not going to get any further until you do. And do you know how to handle disappointment? To get back into the presence of Jesus and to hear him say, Darcy, be warmed up, be encouraged, because I'm with you. Ashley.